As we approach the festive season, now is a perfect time to be buying your wine from different drop online wine retailers and partners of the Vincast podcast. Uh, they've got a huge range of wines from all over Australia, made by some of the most exciting winemakers you can find, uh, many of whom have actually been guests of this podcast. Uh, one of the great things about Different Drop is that uh, if you don't love your wine, you can actually return it free of charge. They'll pick it up from you. And um, even better, they'll actually price match. If you can find it uh, cheaper, then they will actually match that price, which is fantastic. But to be honest, you're not likely to find it very easily because uh, these wines made very, very small volumes. They're artisan wines made in, uh, in very innovative and sustainable ways. Um, many of the guests of the podcast uh, have uh, talked about how much they love selling their wines through Different Drop because they really appreciate, they, uh, they respect the kind of wines that these people are, are making. So um, if you go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepidwino, uh, you'll find quite a few wines made by um, the guests of this podcast and you can support them and support this podcast by buying the wines. And make sure that you're using a special code intrepidwino, one word, at purchase to get a 10% discount on your purchase so thank you very much different drop for your support of the winemakers of this podcast and thanks guys for having a listen on episode 74 of the vincast I talk with Anna Martins, the winemaker behind Vino di Anna, some of the most exciting new wines to be coming out of the Etna region in Sicily. there Vincasters and welcome to yet another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Kessbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino and gee it was lovely seeing a number of you at the Rootstock Sydney Festival uh, very recently. Um, it, it really is um, wonderful when people come up and, and let me know that they're listening to the podcast and what they're enjoying about it and maybe who they enjoy listening about. Uh, so please, please um, come up to me if you see me in the street I guess uh, or you know message me on Twitter or on Facebook or on the website because uh, I'd love to hear from you you know it's always great to get that feedback so uh, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed that weekend it was certainly fantastic to be pouring uh, wines on behalf of my employer um, you know those wonderful Italian wines from Pantelleria Island and I hope you got an opportunity to meet Gabrio Bini because he is quite a character um, now, I actually, um, the last episode, of course, I had uh, John Verderman from Pheasant's Tears, who was, of course, at Rootstock, and um, someone else who was at Rootstock who I managed to um, have a chat with is my guest on this week's episode. Uh, her name is Anna Martins. Uh, she's originally from Adelaide, but um, she has been on a, a pretty amazing kind of winemaking journey uh, around the world and um, has now settled in, uh, in Etna. On, on it, as it should be, I guess, because it is a volcano which just uh, recently had an eruption. Um, and she's making wine there from Nella de Mascalese. So um, it was really wonderful to have a chat with her and, of course, taste her wines while she was here. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please um, stick around to the end to find out how you can get in touch with us to let us know that you enjoyed it too. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. Anna, thank you very much for making some time whilst you are here in Australia. Uh, and, of course, it was lovely to see you up at Rootstock. Uh, and thank you for being on the Vincast. Thanks, James. So, um, as I was saying, uh, I usually ask my guests, uh, first off, if they can remember when they first had an interaction with wine that made them really think that there was something special there and they might want to pursue a career in it. Um, I think for me, there was no actual great defining moment, but I grew up with wine. Um, my family had friends that had uh, vineyards in the Adelaide Hills. And then being a student at Adelaide University, when I did my undergrad degree, we used to just go to the cellar door sales up in the Barossa, in McLaren Vale, in the Adelaide Hills all the time with friends. So mm. it was sort of a combination of exposure at the family table, picnics in vineyards, and then, you know, cruising around cellar doors in the Barossa and um, McLaren Vale that I thought, what an amazing industry. <laughs> Were you born in Adelaide or just yeah, outside Yeah, no, I was born in Adelaide. 
And yeah. you grew up there? I grew up in Adelaide, went to the same school for 12 years. Yeah. So did you have a lot of friends whose families were in the wine industry? Um, look, you know, we're back in the, the 80s during this time. So the industry was just starting. Lots of people were just starting to, to plant around Adelaide. Yeah. So more family friends. And okay. then, you know, as life's gone on, it's, it's amazing the number of members of my family that are in the industry mm. in some shape or form. I know that outside of Melbourne, like in the Mornington Peninsula and Yarra Valley, there are quite a lot of sort of hobby farms, like people, like professionals who kind of said, I might buy some land just outside of the city and, sure. and plant a vineyard. Did that sort of thing happen up in the Adelaide Hills, for example, or down in McLaren Vale? I think it's happened more now, but back in sort of right. the 80s when I was, you know, sort of growing up, um, it was individuals. It seems now sort of the, well, obviously the next or if not the, the, the generation after that, um, it seems to be really dy dynamic, the scene at the moment, which right. I find very exciting, mm. having not lived in Australia for 16 years, what's <laughs> happened since sort of the heyday days of the 90s. Sure. What did you study at Adelaide University? I first did a degree in science, um, majoring in microbiology and immunology mm -hmm. and pharmacology was sort of my minor, which I loved because I'm very scientifically minded. Mm -hmm. And then in my third year, I just suddenly thought, I don't want to be in a white coat for the rest of my life uh, or in a lab. Uh, mm. What can I do? Mm. And um, then just just kept drinking more wine, traveling around, seeing more vineyards. And um, it was almost like, yeah, the penny dropped. Why not move to the wine industry? Sure. And so then I uh, happened to meet Brian Crozer at that time and, um, you, you know, discussed the, the options and the thoughts of the wine industry. Um, yeah. And there was he rec or advised me that the, there was a new postgraduate course that Roseworthy and Adelaide University were setting up. Um, for people that had a science degree, um, six months experience in a winery and, you know, it was a postgrad in enology and viticulture. Right. Um, and I just thought, oh, this sounds amazing. Sure, sure. Um, so you didn't have to sort of start again or transfer across. No, because I'd done a sort of, lot of a lot of the first year subjects and so it was really great. I started working at Petaluma in the laboratory because yeah. you, you needed six months to get into the course. Sure. And then I was the first intake with two other friends. And wow. um, there were just three of us in that first uh, six months. And so was this like a graduate diploma, a graduate At that stage, yes, exactly. It was a graduate okay. diploma, meant to be 12 months. Mm -hmm. um, you sort of slotted into third year, fourth year of the enology degree that was right. being run. Yep. And you picked your, cherry-picked your subjects depending on what you'd done in your um, undergrad. Sure. And um, So you sort of got credit for what you'd already done. Definitely. Yep. Definitely, you know, organic chems, organic chem, microbiology is microbiology. Sure. And um, then, you know, you picked your spe specific subjects, either in viticulture or in enology, to, mm -hmm. to make up the um, the units that you needed for the postgrad diploma. Sure. Um, and I was very lucky that uh, I met some great people at the time at the Australian Wine Research Institute. And I was a bit geeky. I was a bit nerdy. I really, you know, enjoyed the research side. And one was someone by the name of Peter Lesky, which many people know. Mm -hmm. And um, Peter was very influential, you know, on my my life at that stage and study. So I did a fantastic project with Peter Lesky and his team at the AWRI whilst working for Petaluma and studying, um, you know, at weight because mm. the campus was new at weight as well. So, right, okay. um, you know, this is all 93, 94. So mm -hmm. um, exciting times in the industry. And you got a lot out of the, uh, the course? Look, I did. Um, I got a lot of um, exposure to wineries, the wine industry in Australia, um, the course, I think the subjects. The, at that time, the lecturers were sort of learning as it was a new course. Sure. But growing with the demand, the industry was very supportive. Mm. And um, so there were lots of field trips, lots of speakers. Um, and then the course evolved into a master's. So as I was sort of, you know, quite linked to the AWRI, I sort of continued on my a scientific and did a project and did a thesis tied up with them. And, um, yeah, just, again, just met key people mm -hmm. were just talking and lecturing to us on all ranges of subjects, you know, from business to enology to viticulture, um, which was fabulous. And w were there any particular areas that you kind of connected with more than others? Like, did you like winemaking or viticulture or the science of, of it? At that stage, I was very into winemaking. I okay. was very much uh, wine is made by winemaker, grapes sure. are grown by viticulturists. Yep. The two things were quite separate. Which, and which is they were sort of, taught like that. Yeah. And the same thing with Charles Sturt, like previous 
previous guests have sort of said that 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 certainly back then that was how it was kind of structured. Exactly, which is for I think you know whenever I spend a lot of time in France and Italy and uh, have since uh, you know seen some of the courses laid out at Montpellier and in Bordeaux, mm. and they just for them that was just absolutely crazy. Sure, that there wasn't more links, but I think that's where the Australian wine industry was at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, people grew grapes. There were, you know, or in a vineyard. Yeah. And then the real magic was happening at the time of harvest and in the winery. Well, certainly, in like in the Barossa Valley, you know, people have a vineyard and they sell their grapes to two wineries. You know, who who, who buy them essentially for sure. And often a winemaker would never see the vineyard or step foot in the vineyard. No. So it, the, the work starts once the grapes get delivered to the uh, dock. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, I have heard that uh, that has changed quite a bit, certainly at Adelaide University and I think at Charles Sturt, um, where you study both. You do viticulture and winemaking, which I, th- which I think is good. It's kind of I good think it's to know. fundamental, yeah. definitely. And I think the practical side of having to do a harvest or do a vintage, as it's called yeah. here, yeah. and, um, you know, we're so lucky, we're blessed because I teach uh, the WSCT in London um, every now and again, um, some of their courses at the diploma level. And some of my students that are from around the world, they actually have never stepped foot in a vineyard. And out, yeah. so I find that fascinating coming from Adelaide or, you know, us in Australia. You don't need to drive too far to, no. you know, be surrounded by amazing wine regions. Sydney, you have to drive a little bit. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and were you getting the opportunity to, to travel much anywhere else in Australia to other wine regions, that kind of thing at this time? Well, when I worked for Petaluma, it was at the time where it was growing and um, Petaluma as a company started to buy Stonia in the Mornington Peninsula. They're investing over in WA. Um, It wasn't just in the Adelaide Hills. They had vineyards up in Clare, down in Coonawarra. So it was actually a really dynamic time to see that company grow for wines that were made for Petaluma Mm. and then – you know, by several other wineries, Mitchelton in the Goulburn Valley. And then Fataluma Brian Crozer also uh, was doing a lot of contract sparkling winemaking yes. at the facility in the Adelaide Hills. So, um, and I got involved in that. So we're seeing, you know, sparkling bases and having contact with people across the country. Mm. What was your thesis on? Yes, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that, James. I need to have a think. My thesis was on... Um, Indigenous yeast that were um, growing or indigenous yeast that were existing in grape juice that had been cold stored mm. and uh, what was there and where did these come from? Sure. Because at the time, uh, Petaluma would store a lot of juice, their Riesling juice, Chardonnay juice, and they'd ferment it at a later date. It wasn't actually done during harvest. For the purpose of... I think it was the manpower. Um, the focus okay. during vintage was, you know, a lot of uh, about reds. That so, you know, you can yep. only juggle so much work. Yeah. The reasoning, a lot of reasoning was made. So, you know, one tank would be fermenting, and then the rest would sort of be fermented and released later. Oh, okay. So different bottlings. Sure. Um, so I was really fascinated from yeast and what actually did a fermentation. Mm. Uh, you know, where was it coming from? Is it from the vineyard? What species are there? And then what strains are there? That's pretty geeky. Um, yeah, it was kind of geeky. How how long did you end up working at Petaluma for? Um, I started at the end of 93 and I finished at the end of 99. Wow, okay. So you have to do the maths. Um, So, yeah, sort of seven vintages. Sure. I used to count my life in vintages back then. And you were travelling around to all the different wine regions. I'm sure it must have been pretty based dynamic. in based in Adelaide. That okay, was where so, work this, was. So this was still like yeah. when the grapes were just coming in, and that's when the work started. Definitely, because I was studying ninety four, five, six was when I was yeah, doing the post grad and doing my masters. So yeah. very much tied to the university, and you know, work was. And it's a pretty easy commute out of Adelaide, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, this is before the new freeway, but um, sure. I was living. Uh, yeah, sort of twenty minutes up to to the, you know the Adelaide Hills or to to Bridgewater. Mm. Um, where I was based on at the time. And uh, and I can imagine working with – I mean, I had the good fortune when I was working at Domain Chandon to, to be working a little bit with Tony Jordan. And Fabulous. so I can imagine, you know, those two guys, you know, between the two of them have so much knowledge and experience about Definitely. wine in Australia. I'm, I'm sure it must have been, you know, really incredible for you. So when you finished uh, at Petaluma, what was, what was sort of the next step for you? Well, I had actually been introduced to the Master of Wine program at that right. time. And I thought that was quite interesting. <laughs> so um, I moved to New Zealand 
Um, I met a New Zealand um, uh, man and uh, fell in love, so decided to head to New Zealand, mm. uh, continue my studies or start my studies in the Master of Wine program yep. towards one day sitting the exams. Yep. And um, I, in 97, I'd actually had the fortune to go to Burgundy to do Harvest, and my first trip to Europe wow. to go to Burgundy, and then I travelled from the north of Italy through to Tuscany. Sure. So saw some classic regions. The classics, yeah. Bordeaux, Burgundy, Piedmont. To Tuscany, mm-hmm. travel bug hit. I thought this is amazing. Um, Brian said I couldn't quite leave Petaluma then, so um, I became sort of more involved at a senior level in the winemaking team, sure. um, which was always a big team and a fun team, mm. and very much an international team um, during the harvest. And then I, I kind of liked the idea of the Master of Wine and the uh, the idea to to really get to know wine regions and the business from grape growing through to the selling and communication. Did you get that um, just by being introduced to the the program itself or did you kind of get it from the travel and go and like seeing the wine Combination. Combination, sure. Yeah, a combination of sort of the the, 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 my first trip to Europe and being welcomed by, um, you know, people like the Luton family, the Antonori family, the Durand family. Mm -hmm. So with Brian's Crozer's contacts, he was very generous and hooked me up to go and see amazing chateau and little domains. And you would have got some pretty amazing visits out of that, you know, to to really get an in-depth understanding about each of the different domains and chateaus. and Definitely. And just eager to, to discover more, learn more. Mm. And the Master of Wine was sort of, at that stage, I wasn't that familiar with the WSET program, um, right, okay. which wasn't very prominent in Australia. I'm not too sure whether it is the Wine and Spirit Education program now. Whether Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in hindsight, I probably should have got stuck into that first, but I kind of went straight into the Masters of Wine. How did you get introduced to the MW? Um, Brian was a speaker and they used to come and do a seminar in Australia and they were trying to get Australians or an Australasian base um, here that was either, that would, you know, attract people from New Zealand, mm-hmm. South Africa, um, Asia. And so I went to one of the first seminars in Melbourne um, promoting it. And um, Did Mr. Hill Smith have his MW by this point? Yeah, Michael Hill Smith was Master of Wine. Right, okay. And Len Evans at the time was alive and very involved in that, James Halliday. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an amazing experience sure. to, to be part of the study program, which is just – study programs are a, a strong word for the Master of Wine. You know, you come in with a great experience and need to have an extraordinary base to then – you know, just build on it, yeah. Exactly. Um, so that was my sort of thing. From leaving in '99, uh, Petaluma, I thought, let's you know travel, work around the world, study towards you know maybe one day sitting the Master of Wine um, exams. Yeah. Um, and uh, how did you find? Sort of studying in W in New Zealand. Well, I went to New Zealand um, because my boyfriend at the time was uh, a Kiwi. Sure. And um, I had met someone in Burgundy who was a seller hand um, in New Zealand. Yeah. So I was working harvest, studying, and then um, in my spare time I worked retail and I got involved in communications. So Mm. just, again, just different exposure to, you know, the industry. Yeah. Um, New Zealand was fabulous because it was the time of the America's Cup. It was 2000. Yeah, wow. Um, lots of international – the wine shop I worked for had, you know, really a, a big amount of international wines. Well, that was my I next question. Had, was, you know, was Did you find it difficult to get access to a lot of the wines um, to, to sort of be able to get, you know, experience with those – with the wines, of the, with the great wines of the world, I guess? I think I'd had the chance um, working for Petaluma to, to try a lot of great champagnes mm-hmm. and uh, Bordeaux and Burgundy. Um, I had no knowledge of Italian or Spanish wines. German? Uh, a little bit of German, yes. Brian's a good, fa- big fan of German sure. wines and was always very generous of doing some tastings yeah, okay. um, for all the staff and, um, you know, the people in the cellar, um, you know, that were working yeah, in the winery. Yeah, of course, of course. And um, so I sort of fell in with a group of fellow students. There was actually quite a few people starting to study the Master of Wine in New Zealand oh, and a couple of importers importing, you know, things from Germany, from Spain, from Italy, new wines, you yeah, know, sure. Chile. Um, and so, yeah, it actually was a, a really good place, you know, for me in my early early studies to, to be and fun. 
So how far did you go with the, 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 the MW studies? I sat the exams and passed some parts of the paper, but not enough, mm. and um, then decided I actually need to spend some time in Europe. It's all well and good getting the map of uh, Tuscany, but if you haven't driven around, you know, you're never going to know the nuances if you haven't actually spent time in some of these countries. Mm. So I thought, let me take the next couple of years to utilise my winemaking qualifications to be, you know, the flying winemaker. That's your passport in the, in, in the European wine industry. It, Exactly. Oh, what, what was my passport? Or oh, that, oh, that's that, the that passport. Is, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, and so I um, had the opportunity in uh, 2001 to do harvest in Argentina yeah. and travel around South America and then uh, decided to, to go to Italy and uh, work a harvest job um, on the Tuscan coastline. Really? Um, yeah. In, like Bulgari or Marema? Yeah. No, in in Bulgari. Um, wow. So it was at Unalaya. Oh, wow. And um, No ordinary winery. No. <laughs> and which was just, you know, the world was open. Mm. I was hooked. Mm. Italy was amazing. Yeah. And James, Italy's basically been home since 2001. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, so what, so you basically just, Stayed there, basically yes. Um, where did you where, where where did you sort of first settle? At Unalaya, I and basically how- had a room on the estate at Unalaya for yeah. sort of a two month uh, harvest experience. Yeah, um, and uh, got offered a full time job um, at the end of the the two months, and yeah, Unalaya was my home for about four years. All right, and how quickly did you pick up Italian? Um, quite quickly because I'd, I'd actually studied Spanish right. and I went to Florence because I had the chance and uh, during the summer times before the harvest I did a crash language course sure. and at the time Unalaya was actually an interesting place my boss uh, Thomas Duro who was head of winemaking was French yeah. didn't speak Italian that well so we communicated in you know a combination of French, but he spoke fluent English. Yeah. Um, Mondavi was coming in uh, oh, okay. to purchase Ornalaya from Ludovico Antonori. Sure. So, you know, English was, um, you know, uh, a language that, you know, was utilised. Kind of an international sort of... At that of. time, definitely. Sure. Yeah. And and what was it like being, you know, in, in Bulgaria, living, living there? Did you kind of... Oh, just... Um, you know, an absolute dream. Mm. I mean, the 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 countryside is just amazing to be on that co- that coastline, and then be working at a state which you know had such uh, prestige, mm-hmm. um, and with these you know incredible Italian families mm. like the Antonoris and the Frescobaldis, and then you know the uh, Californians, the Mondavis coming in. Sure. And so you know, some days I still pinch myself now of just sort of thinking the room I was in, the people I, I was with, and you know, Michel Roland was the consultant, um, and still is the consultant. But you know, to be doing tastings with you know five people in the room and I'm one mm-hmm. with these you know extraordinary wine people mm-hmm. um, was was just Incredible. And you still have friends from back in those days? Definitely. Absolutely. We've got friends because I was there and I met my husband now actually when I was working there. So, really? um, you know, we spent time in Tuscany uh, as a couple. How um, did that happen? Was he visiting or? He was visiting. He's a wine importer um, in the UK. Yeah. And um, came to that part of the world and ended up renting an apartment from the export manager of Ornalaya. Okay. Who's an English lady. Right. And their paths are crossed in London. And she said, well, look, I've got this little apartment on the coast. And he was studying at Pisa, University Italian. And um, we met through through her and through a couple of other friends um, that were there. And at the time, was he looking at expanding into Italy more and getting more Italian wines? Yes, his company at that that stage, being French, was uh, very much French-focused and um, the idea was to uh, learn Italian and then go and, you know, spend the next five years discovering Italy Mm. from north to south. Um, He's done a pretty good job of that. Yeah, I think so. It's been a fun trip along the way. And um, and so he would come and visit periodically as you were living there? Absolutely. I mean, um, his focus for work was, you know, he had various people and was, you know, had meetings and things back in the UK, but, you know, was to take the company to the next step. Sure. Um, so, you know, spent lots of time in Italy. And uh, so I was sort of working at Onalaya, but then, you know, we'd travel up to, uh, you know, to Sardinia for the weekend or I'd meet him up in the north if he was up in the north and mm-hmm. um, or he'd come down. Um, you know, to Bulgaria for, for the weekend. So 
Yeah. Uh, so you spent four years there? Yes, I was there. I had one break um, for about a year. During, uh, um, so I was there for a period of about two and a half years and okay. then I went back for another year. And in between that, I wanted to sit these Master of Wine exams. Right. And I thought, you know, this, this is it. I need to give it a crack. I've had a chance to, to travel and, you know, um, taste a lot of wines and meet a lot of people. Um, and I chose to come back to Australia for, to do that. Okay. Um, for, I had a few family things that I needed to do back here and, um, um, I gave the yeah, and then went back to back to Europe. Gave the exams a go. Um, sadly, didn't pass enough to get through. Um, but um, I'd gone chosen to to stay on in Italy and, mm -hmm. and at Unalaya, mm -hmm. and life just got too busy. Um, you know, I, I decided then I wouldn't continue on with my studies. I'd focus more on winemaking, and you know, trying to look for for a project down the line to actually be mine and you know become a sort of a true vigneron. Sure. Um, as a supporter of Great Wine Communication, Wine Companion uh, is a great resource for you to um, to find out more about wines that uh, you might have heard about on the podcast or um, around about, you know, talking with sommeliers, that kind of thing. Uh, wine Companion uh, is, of course, the annual guide uh, from James Halliday about uh, Australian wines with lots of uh, reviews and scores and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, but also um, you can find lots and lots of information on the Wine Companion website, uh, including a, a, you know, a back catalogue of, uh, of tasting notes. And Wine Companion is a fantastic magazine which has um, not only uh, reviews and tasting notes, of course, but also some fantastic articles written by wonderful wine communicators, some of whom have actually been on this podcast. And um, as a supporter of uh, wine communication like this podcast, uh, you can actually uh, get a fantastic discount on any Wine Companion subscription package simply by putting in the code INTREPID30 at purchase. So you can get a 30% discount, which is an enormous saving uh, and uh, is really well worth looking into. So um, please let the guys at Wine Companion know that you heard about this wonderful deal uh, on via the podcast and uh, you'll be um, supporting me and supporting Great Wine Communication. So what and and after Onalaya, where did you decide to sort of settle? After Onalaya, I um, went and uh, worked in the south of France for a few months. Mm -hmm. I worked in uh, South Africa for a harvest. Wow! And um, where else did I work? Um, I worked back in Italy again at a very small biodynamic estate that was starting up um, on the coastline. Um, I spent a huge amount of time with Eric traveling through the Jura, the Loire, um, Burgundy, and I had started to taste a lot of natural wine, mm. meet people like Jean-Francois Ganavar, Pierre Venoir, spend time, days with them in their cellar. And I was seeing a different side of wine and grape growing to what I'd grown up with and, uh, you know, how I was been, how I'd been making wines to date. Um, yeah, I can only imagine, you know, having um, grown up in, in Australia, you know, particularly in Adelaide, you know, which is a very strong sort of centre for wine, sure. um, and then, you know, working at Petaluma and then the studies and then the Master of Wine, you, you probably would be less exposed to those kinds of wines. So was it so was it Eric that kind of just introduced you to them? Absolutely it was Eric. I can remember us sort of saying, you know, we were um, in Bulgari and um, him sort of saying, well, look, you know, I am, you've, you've got a week's holiday. I'm, headed, you know, driving back, um, you know, through France to, to the UK. Yeah. Why don't you come with me and let, let me show you the other side? Sure. So, um, you know, complete eye-opening driving and visiting these tiny little estates and just drinking these incredible wines. Yeah. And I just became completely fascinated by the vineyards, the terroir, the sort of, uh, at that stage, what I thought was extreme winemaking yeah. compared to the control that I had always had at Petaluma. Uh, the flying winemaking jobs I'd done had always been quite conventional, mm. lots of work in the winery, to then seeing these people, you know, kind of just letting grapes ferment by themselves, exposed to oxygen. It was well. That's kind of the, the the really funny thing about it is that the the concept of doing very little yeah. is considered to be extreme. Yet, yet having so much control over it, that's the norm. 
Absolutely, James. It's sort of, you know, the, the other way around um, to, you know, well, I think society or the industry, we've actually made it the other way around. In the same way that, you know, organic and biodynamic, you have to get certification, you know, it takes several years, you have to pay to do it to prove that you're adding nothing. Exactly. Whereas everyone else doesn't have to prove what they are doing to it. Exactly. No, I agree with you. Um, and so, and, and I'm, I'm like, one of the things that I'm fascinated about is how Eric managed to find all these estates, you know, you know, in France and then in Italy, like, you know, it just, it, it's such a, an interesting kind of, um, concept as far as sort of focusing on that type of wine, you know, there must be that, that kind of community amongst, uh, vignerons and, and, and estates, you know, both, you know, within France and then, you know, in Italy and then vice versa. Like, uh, you know, did you, did you sort of ask him how he kind of came across, you know, all these different producers? Well, I think it was through, um, he loves to travel. He loves to, um, he doesn't buy wine, um, from samples being sent to him. It was through exposure, actually taking time, a couple of weeks to go to different areas. And, um, he's now, we, he started importing wine 28 years ago. So some of the people that he's worked with weren't necessarily making their wines in a certain way 15, 20 years ago. Right, okay. So they've evolved and grown. So his business has changed. And what was, you know, if he set out just to have such an incredible list of natural, organic, biodynamic wines 30 years ago, yeah. they weren't being made. Sure. These, you know, guys were going through the new wood, going through the sulfur, going through the additives. And um, so I think... Um, it was a slow journey and people were all going in, in, in a certain direction. And then, yes, you start to have family and, you know, it becomes a family and you're, you're going to one maker's house for lunch. His neighbours come along, bought a couple of bottles of what they've made. You get exposed to them. You go to a little local wine bar and you taste what's, what's there. Yeah. And, um, so you say, I'm looking, I'm going to this region. And they say, Oh, go and see my friends. Definitely. Such, yeah. Definitely. And Eric's not, you know, shy to see a vineyard and think, wow, you know, I want to taste what that comes from. Let me knock on the door and find out whose vineyard it is. And, um, um, yeah, but it it is a family. It is a community. So back to sort of, you know, what the question was, um, you know, you do get exposed slowly and then, and then, you know, he's now sought. Sure, of course. Um, So did you kind of have any opportunity to work with him as far as finding more producers in Italy? I was, after I left Unalaya and um, was sort of doing sort of short harvest jobs for people yeah um the idea was to you know i just traveled with him Mm. and you know traveled a lot through france and italy um just soaking it up just Mm. just learning Mm. and um you know we'd spend a few days pruning with someone there a few days looking to see how someone else is making compost a couple of days just sort of in the cellar um and uh you know had a couple of jobs every now and again that sort of ticked over um, I did a bit of writing for an Australian publication. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and yeah, you talked you talked about sort of thinking about you know a future project. At what point did you and Eric sort of talk about the possibility of of ever having your own kind of piece of the world to to make your wine, your own wine? I think it was in two thousand and five where um, I'd gone back to Ornalaya, um after sitting my Master of Wine exams yeah. um, for a period of time as the winemaker. Yeah. Thomas Duro had gone um, to Bordeaux, to Chateau Palmer, mm-hmm. and they were short a winemaker sort of right before harvest in June. So I was asked whether I could step up and, and take the position for six months, why they interviewed to find, you know, basically Thomas' predecessor sure. and um, the person that was going to take over. Um, and so I hoped at that time it might be me because um, it was going to be an amazing role, but also I was a little bit hesitant because I actually sort of thought I'd seen how other people were making their wines sure. and I thought this could potentially be my opportunity to go off and find and create my own project. And Derek and I went to Mount Etna um, uh, for, to, to look for some wines for him to import into the UK. Yeah. And we both were just, you know, fell in in love with the terraces, the old vines, the crazy, you know, uh, climate, uh, Nerello Mascalesi, Caricante. And I think there we both had a moment and sort of said, look, you know, uh, not sure where, you know, where the relationship's going to go, but let's talk about maybe one making making wine together Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so, yeah, it was, was, you know, the idea was, was born back in 2005. 
Okay. And and did you buy some some vineyards? At the time, no. Um, we looked around and we were sort of seeking out sort of prices. And then it's actually a very complex uh, viticultural region. Um, so my idea was to find somewhere that I could, someone I could could work with, and really just try and discover Etna and sort of see, you know, down the track, is this something feasible? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, do we really love Nerello Mascalesi? Is it sort of, you know, um, something we want to work with? Um, and I had the great opportunity to uh, uh, land a job and work um, for several years with Andrea Franchetti mm-hmm. and his property at Paso Pichardo. yeah. Wow. Um, so in, 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 in that particular area, Paso Pichardo, of course, is uh, is well known for the Nerello Mascalesi in particular. They don't really yes. work with Nerello Capuccio as much in my in no, no, in their vineyards, there, there's not of capuccio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, what was it like working working in Edna? Were you, was it uh, as isolated or a lot more isolated than working in Bulgaria, for example? Um, very different because I chose to take a different role. At Unalaya, I was very much um, had become a winemaker that um, had an enormous team in the vineyard and an mm. enormous team in the winery. Mm. So I wrote work lists for people and I did a lot of tasting and a lot of discussion, but my hands were wiped. Mm. I wasn't getting them dirty. Yeah. When I went to work for and- Andrea, it was a much smaller team. And from the outskirts, I said, look, um, I, I will only take on the job of helping him, you know, make the wines because, I mean, he's a very talented winemaker himself. Sure. If I could spend as much time in the the vineyards and I would harvest and I would be there for the ploughing, you know, all the treatments, any sort of um, sprays, I wanted to be involved with that. Yeah. And in the winery, I wanted to be the one dragging the hose, the pump, sure, doing sure. all the physical work. Yeah. And I think he thought that was quite exciting. Um, you know, a, a girl, um, a girl, you know, who had, had, you know, some experience sort of at a high level at Onalaya. Yeah. Now actually wanting to come back to the basics. Yeah. Had he, um, had he purchased the Tuscan estate at this point? Yeah. Torinoro was a very successful estate okay. and, um, uh, making, you know, very expensive, um, incredible wines. Sure. Um, Paso Pichardo was a dream and an estate that he had bought, uh, from Ruin and um, very wisely had bought some beautiful old vineyards um, sort of 10, 10 years before and was in the, the stage of rejuvenating these sort of 80, 100-year-old vines. All the contradas. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what was life like in Etna back at that time? Was Eric sort of back and forth or were you back and forth a little bit as well? I sort of chose um, – I was back and forth a bit, but I sort of chose to be based there literally for the first six, seven months because I didn't want to – I wanted to to turn it into home. Sure. And so whilst um, uh, we, we both sort of travelled on weekends and, and holidays, um, I really wanted to give it a go and become part of the community yeah. for a certain period of time. And the work that I was doing dictated that amount as well when you've got things fermenting and, um, you know, vineyard work. Um, but life was amazing. Um, you know, it really came back to being, you know, life in the countryside. I'd actually learned Italian and I could converse properly there um, and it sort of had made a, uh, an effort with the language because um, I'm not a linguistic person at all. Um, and I was just welcomed so warmly um, Did, by You didn't people. get sort of funny looks saying, who's this strange, you know, girl from Australia coming to make wine here in, in Etna? Look, not at all. I think I'd had some really interesting experiences where I was a great buyer, um, you know, working with um, people in Argentina. Yeah. Um, I think I invested in time and I just wanted to become part of the, the family that for me there was no, you know, I'm up high because I'm educated, you know, have a have a sure, degree sure. and an education. Sure. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, um, let let's cut grapes, let's prune together, let let's um let's muck in. Yeah. <laughs> and um it was fabulous and I really w- was warmly received by um the men in the fields, the Unala Paso Bicharo had a lot of women as well working right. in the vineyards. Okay. Um similar age to me and so you know b- being invited home, I mean I rarely cooked a meal. I was, you know, lunch dinner uh, surrounded by very quickly a beautiful family groups of family on Etna. And so you, you clearly thought, oh, this this would just be a lovely place to, to set up. So when when and how did uh, Vino di Anna 
kind of officially get born. Okay, Vino Diana, um, uh, obviously starting, the first harvest I did for Andrea was in 2007 and um, it was amazing sort of first harvest to Nerello Mascalesi. Um, I arrived quite soon as we were starting to pick. So I just sort of accompanied his decisions and what was happening in the vineyard for the harvest. Yeah. And then straight away had itchy fingers to try and find a little plot that I could rent because at that time I didn't have... Uh, well, I wasn't too sure where I wanted to buy mm. and exactly what I wanted to do, um, but could work the vineyard and make 600 bottles of wine sure. just, just to start somewhere. Sure. And so Vino Diana actually started in 2008 mm -hmm. um, and I ended up having two parcels of fruit and uh, made the wine literally in a plastic tub in the corner of Andrea's winery and uh, bought some old barrels and it got thrown into some old barrels. Wow. And Vino Diana, the name, and it was actually started off because the wine was, you know, um, indigenous yeast, no sulfur, um, sort of made naturally. Mm. The boys in the cellar had actually labelled the wine, the barrels, by writing Aceto Diana, so Anna's vinegar. <laughs> so Vino Diana actually started out being called Aceto Diana. Yeah. And really funny story, I didn't realise they'd done that at one stage because they'd labelled the barrels on a certain angle and I actually hadn't picked up on it and they were waiting for me too. But during the 48 hours, that a journalist had came along and sort of said, oh, what's the Aceto Diana over there? You know, um, I've met Anna, do you make vinegar? And then I saw that, the, and I said, no, no, that's my vino. And so vino Diana kind of sprang out a, a joke between the couple of guys that I were working with in the cellar and in the vineyard Eric, myself, and um, so yeah, the wine, those barrels then got turned into Vino Diana, mm -hmm. and the name, the name stuck. Wow! And did you um, take the opportunity to kind of uh, visit some of the other vignerons you know, on it, uh, particularly the ones who are working in in that kind of low intervention um, method? At that time, it was exciting because um, I uh, there was Alberto Gracci was just starting out. Yep. Um, uh, Giuseppe Russo had just taken over the property from his father. Mm -hmm. um, they're a bit younger than me, but we were sort of similar ages, so we sort of started swapping ideas, and they'd often call me and uh, for for my thoughts and come to the vineyard, come to the winery, and so we could sort of taste and bounce ideas off each other. Yeah. Frank Cornelison, I'd met, and um, he was sort of very generous. We ate and drank a lot together during those days because um, neither of us had a family there. Mm. And uh, Marco de Grazia, um, I'd met Salvo Forti, um, Massimiliano from Calabretta. So there really is, you know, a lovely little community of people. Mm. And we all used to meet at this crazy wine bar called Carvox on a Friday. I have heard of it. <laughs> and um, it was just a melting pot of ideas. People from around the world discovered this, this you know, it was a shoebox. Sure. And Sandra is this mad guy that would just open bottles of wine um, from around the world. And, you know, there you'd find yourself on Mount Etna, you know, drinking Gravna or drinking, Avenoir. you know, Auvenois, um, drinking Jean-François Ganevar. Yeah. And it was, it was fun. Yeah. So um, how did uh, Vino Diana evolve to, you know, what it, what it is now? Well, the first one, we just made literally 600 bottles in 208. 209, we made a little bit more. And um, then uh, Eric and I were expecting our first baby. And um, so in 210, um, I left, had to leave Andrea's position because um, I didn't have the family support in Sicily to have a newborn and continue working in the capacity yeah. that Paso Pichardo required. Yeah. And with Eric, we decided, look, you know, let's actually see if we can buy a vineyard and, um, you know, start to make some, some real wine. Sure. And um, that quickly evolved in uh, buying uh, two parcels of old vine Nerello Mascalesi that year. And then we rented um, a house um, that was opposite the vineyard. And the first year in 2010, we uh, made the wines actually in a local co-op. Was okay. There any space we could find? Yeah. Moved in a we'd we'd had you know a wooden fermenter, a couple of things sort of um, that made for us from friends in France, and so we sort of had this space in this massive co-op, which was an experience. And so then we thought we really need to find our own place. Um, and uh, in 2011, we actually purchased an old winery and started renovating that. Yeah. And the first Vino Diana that was actually made in our place with our grapes was 2011. Wow, okay. And and 
tell me a little bit about how you know each vintage has um, kind of showed you more, you know, and, you know, spoken more of, of of that place and and how your winemaking has evolved. Well, each year is is different. Each year we've we've grown, we've purchased more little parcels of fruit, or we've had contacts with people that um, we can rent their their vineyards or lease their vineyards yep. and work them the way we want. Yep. Um, so from making one wine in two hundred eight and uh, one wine in two hundred nine, um, we started to to try and just do different things to Nerello Mascalesi Um, and fermenting in plastic, fermenting in concrete, fermenting in stainless steel. Um, Eric went to Georgia in 2012 at the beginning of the year and got given a gift of a quavery from Georgia. Um, So every year we seem to, just through life, have been, you know, expanding our little vineyards that we have down there and – just choosing different ways to either manipulate grapes or just put them somewhere to ferment yeah. and see what happens. And and no doubt, you know, quite a bit of wine will be going into the UK through uh, Le Cave de Pirenne. Um, wh- where else have, um, have you started to be able to sell your wines around the world? We now sell our wines actually to 15 different countries. So slowly, slowly from 2011, we started to seek export. Um, partners. Mm-hmm. Some were sold in Italy and yes, in the beginning, quite a bit to come to U- the UK. Um, I then had to stop that why as we didn't produce that bigger quantity of wine. Mm. We had the nice position of our wine sort of being in demand. Mm. Etna just became an explosion for the for choice of bad words of everyone was interested. Everyone wanted to have an Etna wine on their list. Yeah. So, you know, we'd be there locally and people from Sweden, from Japan, from uh, Scandinavia, Scandinavia definitely, um, were looking for Etna wines. Sure. And we chose um, through both my experience and Eric's experience, we had contacts in all the wine fairs from around the world. Sure. And we started to be invited to show our wines um, at Vini Veri, the off from Vin Italy, mm-hmm. um, uh, in the south of France at La Dive. So slowly we, because of friends, they sort of tried our wines and very generously sort of said, well, you know, you fit the philosophy of what our event is about in the in the way you're farming your vines mm. and making your wines. Come show them. And from there we had the chance to meet importers from around the world. And, of course, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, you were here for the Rootstock Wine Festival, speaking of, of wine fairs. Um, how did you find uh, the event and, and interacting with uh, some of the some of the I guess the young enthusiastic um, wine lovers here. Rootstock was amazing. Um, we've kindly Giorgio has kindly invited us uh, last year as well, and sadly we couldn't come because of the the time of the year. Um, it, so it was fabulous. I think the energy of the room and the number of people that just seemed to be so interested. I found the industry. Just you know, just really exciting, mm. and not having lived in Australia for many years. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I'd sort of thought what had happened in Sydney, but Melbourne just seems to be sort of crazy. The enthusiasm for for wines, because when I grew up, you know, even working at Petaluma in the nineties, there wasn't a lot of imported wine. No, and it was very expensive. Sure, not saying it's not expensive these days, but the industry is booming, and there's just the desire of people to travel and taste. And certainly back then, I think that the wines that were imported were at the more expensive end. Definitely. You know, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne. For sure. And they were the you know, classics. Super Tuscans, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but but now, like, you can find wines from, you know, almost anywhere in Europe and there's exciting wines coming out from, you know, other New World wine-producing countries as well. The few places I've gone to eat at, the wine lists are really exciting yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I had the chance to see wine lists often in Paris and in London and I think, you know, some of them here are just as exciting, if not even more. Yeah, well, it's, it's obviously it's a really exciting and dynamic time, and and clearly, you know, what Vinodana isn't even ten years in yet, so there's probably a lot more, um, you know, ahead of you as far as um, how the wine will evolve and grow, and and so I'm, you know, obviously I'm excited to to see more of your wines in the future. Oh, thank you, James. That's really kind. No, we're think I think from 2014 we've finally filled. We've made one white, six reds, and I think that's where we'll keep it. But we've now got our little estate has grown to nearly five hectares yeah. and, um, you know, we've expanded um, and we now feel like we're proper vignerons making wine. So yeah. fantastic. Uh, fabulous. 
And people will be able to get um, uh, access to the wines here in Australia? Our wines will land at the end of January and Patrick Sullivan, a winemaking friend of ours, will be... And former guest of the podcast. Oh, okay. Um, Patrick will uh, be distributing them for us. Sure. And so they'll probably come available in March. I think he's going to let them sort of settle for a couple of of months before they head out on the trade. Fantastic. And, well, I just want to say thank you very much uh, oh, for, James, for being on the show. Oh, James, it's been my pleasure. Um, and how, how, what's the best way for people to kind of uh, follow the Vino Diana story on, on social media and online, that kind of thing? Okay, we have a Facebook page, Vino Diana, and um, I welcome many friends. <laughs> and we have a website, um, which should be updated more than it is, but, uh, you know, we do have a website. And um, maybe I'll get... Patrick will get me organised a bit more on social media with Instagram and things like that. So. Patrick and organised is not necessarily two words you find in the same sentence. Okay, often. maybe my six-year-old will actually teach me how to do that, those sorts of things. So, and other than that, visitors. We love visitors. I, and I, I highly recommend a visit to Edna. Our place is, is always uh, the doors open and uh, you have to work. That's the only way we feed and people <laughs> feed. We feed and drink, uh, feed and water people, I should say. But mm. uh, there's always some work to be done, which is great fun. Fantastic, and I look forward to the next opportunity to meet. Cheers, James. Thanks for your time. And as always, thank you very much, guys, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Kersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and as usual, you can follow me on social media on on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast is at The Vincast. Uh, if you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find my Facebook page with uh, lots of links and pictures. Uh, if you go to the YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, again, one word, uh, you'll actually uh, be able to see some videos that I've made of uh, tasting some wine, some of which were made by guests of the podcast. Uh, and uh, I'd love a subscription for you to subscribe to that and, uh, and like a couple of videos. Uh, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or any number of different uh, podcasting apps. Uh, and if you do subscribe, it means you get the episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, if you do subscribe, please do leave me a rating and a review. It is fantastic feedback for not only myself, but also potential guests and potential listeners of this podcast. Uh, of course, all the information can be found at intrepidwino.com uh, where you can uh, also read about um, various uh, tastings and uh, adventures I've been on in the past. Uh, it's great to have you on board. As always, I look forward to more guests uh, for the, uh, before the end of the year. But until then, bye.